Amen. Well, Thursday was Ascension Thursday. Now, we in the, the free church tradition, the Baptist tradition, we don't talk a lot, probably don't talk enough about the church calendar. We tend to value the American holidays, holy days, over the church's holy days. But Ascension Day is worth spending a weekend on, and next Sunday will be Pentecost Sunday. Ascension Day is the 40th day after Easter. Marks the day when Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and is ascended to heaven. We read about it in the book of Acts. We won't go there. Let me just read it. We're going to be in Psalm 110. But let me read what we read in Acts 1, 9 to 11. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. It's the ascension of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, the enthronement of Jesus, I think sometimes neglected by us in our own personal life, sometimes neglected by the church, but something that we've confessed together as a church from the very beginning. The Apostles' Creed says it. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Almighty. And so week after week, this has been confessed and it's providential. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. That's what we normally do as a church. If you're new here, is walk through books of the Bible. And last week, we're in Matthew 26, where Jesus said to the high priest, he says to Caiaphas, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referring to his exaltation that was about to take place right after he tells Caiaphas. He says, from now on meaning it's about to be fulfilled. Caiaphas, you're going to see my vindication. You're going to see my exaltation. He quotes Daniel 7 there combined with Psalm 110, and the latter of which is going to be our focus this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll want one. Uh, we've got them there in the chairs. It's page 476, Psalm 110. It's God's favorite verse. Why do we know that? Because it's quoted more than any other passage in the Bible. Quoted or alluded to some 37 times in the New Testament. And so we need to have a handle on it. Main point as we think about this psalm is that because of the ascension of Jesus, he is the world's true and rightful ruler. So let's consider the, the significance of this king from Psalm 110. Six truths from God's favorite verse. Number one. This king is David's Lord. Look at Psalm 110.1 again with me. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So notice what we have here. Probably your Bible has Lord here. It's probably all caps. Anytime you have all caps in, in your Old Testament with Lord, it's referring to God's personal name, that which he revealed himself as, Yahweh. And so Yahweh, this is David writing, Jesus tells us that, Yahweh says to David's Lord. Well, think about it for a moment. Who is this? David's the king. We would understand if it was talking about David's Lord as Yahweh, but here there's a distinction. Yahweh says to another Lord of David, well, David's the king. He is the Lord. So who is it that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the coming king, the Messiah who is to come, who will be 
David's Lord. Now we know, everyone knows from all over the Old Testament that the coming king, the Messiah, is a son of David. But here we learn he's not just the son of David, he's also the Lord of David. Maybe if you remember a few weeks ago, we were in Matthew 22, where Jesus mentions this. And he says, if David calls him Lord, in Psalm 110, Jesus quotes, then how is he his son? Well, he's both. Yes, he's the son of David, but he's also the Lord of David. So this king is going to be higher than David, higher than the king. He's David's Lord. Number two, this king shares the very authority of God himself. Let's read it again there, Psalm 110.1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse in particular, Psalm 110, verse 1, is directly quoted six times in the New Testament. It's directly quoted or referred to or alluded to 24 times in the New Testament. This verse is really important. Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. The right hand, it's not literal, but it's a symbol of privileged position. The most privileged position. It's the place of honor. It's a sharing of the authority of God himself. It means, to quote one scholar, to enjoy a posture of power and authority given by the one at whose right hand someone sits, end quote. The right hand of God is the control center of the heavenly throne room. This king's going to sit down there. And this king's going to sit down, not to rest, but to rule from here. He will rule and he will reign. And when does that happen? Well, it happens at the ascension. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God and he sits. And to sit is to be in thrones. Yahweh says to the king, sit at my right hands until I make your enemies your footstool. Think about that imagery. This king is going to rule from heaven until his enemies are on the ground. And this king will rest his feet on his enemies. This is imagery of victory, right? It's conquest. Subjection of those who are opposed to him. This king is the world's victorious ruler. He will share the very authority of God. Third, this king is actively ruling in history. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. The scepter of the king issues from Zion, which is where God dwells. His throne is in the heavens. And this king will rule from heaven in the midst of his enemies. In other words, he's ruling now. It started in the ascension. The kingdom is not just totally future. It's now and not yet. The kingdom started in Jesus' first coming, but it'll be consummated at his second coming. And so he is on the throne now, ascended at the right hand, and he's ruling now in history, progressively subduing his enemies. So you notice the reign, it has a distinct beginning and a distinct ending. Christ's rule started at the ascension when he sat down at God's right hand, and it will last until every last enemy is subdued. Again, his rule doesn't start at the second coming. Starts at his first coming. Second coming, there will be no enemies. This is talking about within history where there are enemies. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Right before that in verse 24, he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Jesus Christ is on the throne, reigning and ruling and slowly but surely subduing his enemies through the gospel. When someone believes upon Christ, they turn from enemy to friend. An enemy is subdued as we put our faith and our allegiance in Christ the King and turn from our sin. Enemies to friends. Every time a person believes the gospel, the rule of his mighty scepter extends from Zion. He's expanding his rule as the nations are converted. This makes our missions and our evangelism extremely significant, doesn't it? We're spreading the rule of Jesus, expanding his kingdom as we go and preach the gospel. So God's expanding the kingdom of this king, of this Christ from Zion, slowly but surely, progressively in history, in the midst of his enemies. As Jesus says, it takes time. It's spiritual, not physical. It doesn't come all at once. It's not something to be observed, he says. He says, no, it's like a little mustard seed. It's the tiniest of the seed, but eventually it becomes the largest of the trees. So it's like a little bit of leaven that starts small, but eventually it, it leavens the entire lump, the entire loaf. The prophet Isaiah said, it's like a mountain that becomes the highest of the mountains and all the nations will flow to it, Isaiah 2. The prophet Daniel said, it's like a stone that over time becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth as the Son of Man reigns. This king will rule and reign in history until his enemies are subdued. Fourth, this king is also a priest. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn. Yahweh has taken an oath. David, of course, is referring to the covenant that God made with him. 2 Samuel 7. The promise that he would have a son who would have an eternal kingdom. Flip back to Psalm 89 which is talking about that same covenant promise. Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness You've said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David. There's that word sworn. The Lord has sworn. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Flip back the other direction to Psalm 132, which is also speaking of this covenant promise given to David. Look at Psalm 132, verse 11. Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore, there it is, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You can bank on this. 
this ascended king is also a priest. He says, you're a priest forever. Just think about the categories of which the audience of this first psalm was written. There were no forever priests. He says here, you're a priest forever. This is no temporary priest here. This priest is not limited by his own sin. The book of Hebrews reflects a lot on this psalm. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. No other priest had an oath like this one. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn sworn, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor. Don't you love that word? The guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Lord has sworn this one will be a priest and he'll be a priest forever. This priesthood will be settled. He is an everlasting priest. Why? Because he lives forever. The coming king is going to be a king and a priest. If you know your Old Testament, though, you know that these two offices, they had to be separated. They were total separate offices. You did not combine these. You were either a king or a priest. You were not both in the Old Covenant law. Maybe you remember Saul's unlawful sacrifice. Saul tries to act like a priest in 1 Samuel 13. He's not allowed, and it basically cost him the kingdom. You don't join these offices. Maybe you remember Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. He tries to act like a priest. He tries, King Uzziah tries to burn incense on the altar. What happens? God strikes him with leprosy, starting with his forehead. 2 Chronicles 26, verse 21. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. This is serious business. Kings aren't priests. But this future king, This future ruler is going to overturn that, and he's going to be a king and a priest. But he's going to be a different kind of priest. Again, if you know your Old Testament, what order were the priests from? They were from Levi, right? Aaron. This, though, he's going to be a Melchizedekian priest. What is that? Who's that guy? Melchizedek's really only mentioned one other time in the whole Testament, and it's just for a little, little glimpse, a little blip on the radar in Genesis chapter 14. I wish we had time to go there. We don't. Basically, what happens is after war, he comes and Abraham blesses Melchizedek, and Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. This, his name means Melek King, Zedek Righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. He comes out of nowhere, and you know who he's the king of? Salem, formerly, now we know as Jerusalem comes out and he's superior to Abraham. We don't have time to go there. Hebrews 7 lays all this out. You can check that out this afternoon. This priest is going to be in the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. He's going to be a king and he's going to be a priest. Fifth, this king will crush heads. Back to Psalm 110 verse 5.
the Lord is at your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. If you've got an ESV there, notice that word chiefs. It's got a footnote, footnote number four. I'll go down to footnote number four and it says, or the head. This coming priest king who's in the order of Melchizedek is going to crush heads. Again, the astute Bible reader knows what he's referring to here. The very first gospel promise given to us in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The first gospel where God tells the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, the serpent crusher that we've been waiting on. The one that's going to crush the head of the enemy ultimately is going to be a son of David. But not only a son of David, but also the Lord of David. And not just a king, but also a priest. And not just any priest, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This king will subdue his enemies. He's going to make his enemies his footstool. This victor is going to rest his feet on them. He's going to crush heads, notice what it says, over the wide earth. His rule's not limited. No, his victory will be universal. He's a forever king for everyone. The entire earth will ultimately submit to this king. Flip back with me to Psalm chapter 2. Again, I wish I had time. There's all kinds of parallels between Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm 110. Both are royal psalms. He will rule over the wide earth. Look what Psalm 2 verse 6 says. As for me... I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'll tell of the decree the Lord said to to me, you are my son, promise to David. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This son will be installed. He'll be enthroned and he will ultimately rule over the whole world. He will inherit the nations. Again, this is why we do missions and evangelism. Because God promised the son he would inherit the nations. Flip over to Psalm 22. He will crush heads over the wide earth. Look at the end of Psalm 22, verse 27. Psalm 22 is the psalm that Jesus quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But notice how it ends. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Flip over to Psalm 72. Another royal psalm that speaks of the universal rule of the coming king. Psalm 72 Get verse 8. Speaking of the king, may he have dominion, may he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba 
bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Just like God promised Abraham. Just like God promised David. Look at verse 17. He combines the promises. May his name. Both Abraham and David were promised that their name would be great. And this king will be the son of David and son of Abraham. And therefore his name will endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This coming priest king is ruling now. He's subduing the nations into his global empire. As each person repents and believes and repents and believes and repents and believes. Look down at Psalm 110 verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Part of ancient Jewish enthronement ceremonies was this rite of drinking from a Gihon spring for refreshment. That's what we see here. I get the image of a boxer walking back to his corner after the TKO. He just needs some Gatorade to rehydrate. The king crushes head and then lifts his head. This king will crush heads. Sixth, the people of this king will serve with eagerness. Look up at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. And so the people of this king, they offer their lives up willingly and freely. Strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. This king has continual sources of fresh energy, of course, now we know from the Spirit. The people of this king, they're arrayed in priestly attire. Holy splendor. Who wears holy garments? Priests are those who wear holy garments. So this king has an army. An army of people that are eager and refreshed by the Spirit and they're clothed in priestly garments who go forth to subdue his enemies and extend his kingdom as they go and share the good news of this kingdom. The means by which this Melchizedekian king priest will conquer is by a willing army of king priests. Lowercase k, lowercase p. And as Peter tells us, we are that kingdom of priests. We go when we spread his rule. That's what we're called to do. I wish we had more time. I'm going to say that a lot. I left a third of this sermon in the study. The same word for rule is the word used in Genesis chapter 1, the original commission given to all of us, all of mankind. Go and rule and subdue. And here he's the true image of God. And we go now on behalf of him, the true king, and we rule and subdue. From this magnificent psalm, we learn that Jesus is the world's true and rightful ruler. He's the ascended Lord. We see that Jesus Christ is the ascended king. He's exalted to the throne of God. And from that position of authority, he will go forth with his people, indeed through his people, to rule in the midst of his enemies, subduing them and extending his rule and reign to the four corners of the world. And that reign will not end until, he says, all his enemies are his footstool. What an encouraging vision of our victorious king. I think we see, we've already seen what it means for us, but what else does the ascension mean for us. I think it should affect us in at least six ways. First, we should be comforted. 
should be comforted because Jesus Christ is in control. Jesus has the wheel. He's on the throne. He's the head of the control center of the heavenly throne room. There are no maverick molecules in his universe, but rather he is orchestrating history. And he's doing so, we read in Romans 8, in order that every event, hard and easy, will be to the Christian's maximum advantage, which is conformity to him. Be comforted, saint. He's in control. Fight anxiety with this truth. Jesus Christ is on the throne. The right man is at the helm of the cosmos. Be comforted by the ascension. Number two, we should be missionally active because of the ascension. Because Jesus is at work right now. He's actively ruling and reigning and subduing his enemies as the gospel is preached. The ascension is fuel for the Great Commission. Maybe you can see that parallel a little bit. What does the Great Commission say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. Therefore, go and make disciples. Jesus is at the right hand of God and now will rule until all his enemies are made his footstool. And how does that happen? As the gospel is shared by us, priests. Listen to the way the book of Acts puts it in chapter 5. Acts 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand, Psalm 110, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Think about that. He's telling the early churches they're about to go and spread the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And he says, this Jesus has been exalted to the right hand. And yes, he's our savior, but he's also his le- our leader And so as we go on the mission of the church, we have a leader with all authority who is leading us by his spirit. And what's he doing? He's granting repentance to give repentance to Israel. We go and we share the gospel and the exalted king is expanding his rule by granting repentance to those who will believe. He's leading from the throne as the gospel is spread. Third, we should be optimistic. Why? Because Jesus Christ is reigning and he is winning and he will win. And because his victory is assured, our victory is assured. As Romans 8 says, we're more than conquerors. That's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19. He's praying that we might understand this, that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. How is he exercising his power right now? It's toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, Psalm 110, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church. He has shared his power and his authority with us. Oh, man. We should be optimistic. Do we believe he's on the throne or do we act as if he's still in the tomb? Don't let CNN get you discouraged. Don't let Fox News get you encouraged about the wrong kingdom. 
Let's be optimistic because the kingdoms of this world will give way to the kingdom of Christ. Fourth, we should stand secure because of the ascension. Secure. Because not only a king, and he doesn't just reign, but he's a priest who provides atonement. Our greatest need, the forgiveness of sins, should be secure because Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. He's a priest, and he's a priest forever. And he's able not only to save, he's able to save to the uttermost. Our king is our priest who atones for our sin. Here's how Hebrews chapter 10 puts it. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Our salvation is secure because Jesus is raised. He's ascended after having made atonement on the cross. A single sacrifice. It is finished. And so, dear saint, rest in his finished work on your behalf. We should be secure. Fifth, we should be assured because the ascended priest king is interceding for us. That's what priests do. They make atonement and they pray for their people. This king who has all authority in heaven and on earth has your name on his lips and he prays for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's been in, installed and enthroned as king, and he is there, and he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. Can you imagine his prayers for you? Oh, man, if we could just hear. If we could just hear a moment of our interceder. Praying for us. Nothing in this world could get us down, right? Well, believe it, saint. He is. He's there. Standing victorious, seated victorious. Praying that we would finish well keeping us. That's why we sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love 
whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Saints, he stands in heaven right now with your name graven on his hands, with your name written on his heart. And because he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. Come what may, we stand secure because he's secure. So we should be assured because the ascended priest king is interceding for us. And then sixth and finally, because of the ascension, we should, we should lift our eyes. We should center our lives. We should focus our minds. We should set our minds on him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Because the ascension, we ought to not be worldly. Because the ascension, we ought to focus on the eternal and not the trivial. Because of the ascension, we ought to set our minds on Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism is one of my favorites. It's just so warm. It teaches good doctrine, but it's just so devotionally warm. I want to close by reading... From the Catechism, question 49. It's a question. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? Answer. First, he is our advocate in heaven in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven. He's still a man in a resurrected body. We have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ our head will also take us. His members up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Jesus Christ is the world's true and rightful ruler, ascended, seated at the right hand of God.